Hi, my name is Noah Winter. Today's scripture comes from John 17, 6 through 19. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave them, uh, me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Thank you. Thanks, Noah. Thank you. Cool. That's my godson, so it's always so cool to see him reading. Thanks. Uh, we're in this section that um, Dave started last week in looking at this prayer of Jesus and sort of began asking you, what do you pray about? And especially when you pray for people you love, what do you pray for them? What do you think that they need? A friend of mine, her name is Kathy, woke up. She was like eight or nine years old. She woke, woke up before the sun came up. And in her house, she went downstairs. She couldn't go back to sleep. And as she was making her way down a hallway to their kitchen, she could hear the sound of voices. And she thought, oh, maybe my parents are awake. And on the way, she passed her father's office and the door was just a little bit ajar and she could see in. And she realized it was one voice. It was his, her father's voice. And as kids want to do, they want to know what parents are talking about. She snuck closer to listen, and she realized that as she looked in, her father was on his knees, and he was praying. And she listened in on his prayer. Now imagine the intimacy of a moment like that, of hearing your dad, and by the way, her dad was praying aloud, pouring out his heart before God. And this child realizing the God she's heard her parents talking about is real. And she's, she's hearing her dad actually engage with God. An overwhelming experience. And as she stood there and listened, she heard her dad pray for the members of her family and also to pray for her. Now, so many years, that woman Kathy 
She's now a grandmother. She has children of her own, but she's never forgotten that moment for the intimacy of it and how it opened up, up to her the reality of her dad's faith. And it was there her faith began to be real too, that this is a real God and we can come to him and, and call on his name. And, and when I heard Kathy hear this story, I thought, wow, would it be possible for my kids to, to ever overhear one of my prayers? And, and what do I pray about for them? What do I bring before God? You see, John is inviting us in his gospel into this moment when the disciples of Jesus hear this most intimate communication between the Father and the Son. And of course, Jesus has to know. By the way, Kathy's dad never knew. She left that moment before he was aware she had been listening. But Jesus knows the disciples are listening. And you'd have to wonder, why does Jesus allow them to overhear? And I think it's because there are things that we cannot learn through teaching. We actually have to be invited in to the experience of this relationship. And that's what, happen, what is happening right here. Would you pray together with me? Father, we feel like we're, or I feel like, I think all of us should feel like we're on holy ground where we get to hear how you commune with your son. We get let in on the, the divine fellowship, this, this love that you share between father and son as a way so that we can understand and, and we can join in it too. And so I pray this morning that we would not just grasp what is happening, but we too would begin to live in that relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and by extension, he's also praying for us. And as I asked, you know, how do you pray for those that you love, your children, if you have them, your family, or your spouse, or your close friends. Now, this really hits home for me this week because on Tuesday, we had one of these amazing events, Sandy and I. You can see our latest granddaughter was born on Tuesday. Her name is Mabel Grace Carson. Don't you love that name, Mabel Grace? We didn't, we didn't know yeah, until Wednesday morning. So you're sort of thinking about, okay, what do I want for for my family? What do I want for my children? What do I want for people that I love? Okay? And it gets you to thinking about that, right? Thinking about how you would pray for them, desires for their good and for their future. By the way, if you ask parents today, what do you want for your kids? There's tons of studies. You'll see one of them that's a graph here. Today, if you ask parents, they'll say, well, they want their kids to be hardworking. They want them to be responsible human beings. They want them to get along with other people. They want all of those things for their future. But here's the thing. Psychology Today, the magazine, you'll see one of those magazine covers. They published an article a few years back that had a really interesting study. And the study was like this. The study, they asked parents, they said, look, if something happened to you, and you couldn't raise your own children, what household would you want them to grow up in? Where would you want them to grow up? And then they gave them two options. And the first option is this family that has an incredible house. They're super wealthy. 
The kids go to the best private schools. They have all of the stuff you could want, and they have it in abundance. But the reality is the parents are like super busy. They're always off working, and the relationships there are are strained or they're, they're thin at best. They, they feel detached and distant from the members of their family. That's the first family. And then the second family, they said, this family has a very modest life. And actually, they struggle a lot financially to pay their bills. They don't have that huge house, and their kids don't go to the choice schools, but they have these very close-knit and loving relationships that are within that family. Everybody feels close and they share their time and their life together. So they asked these folks, if you couldn't raise your kids, which of these two houses, if you could only choose one of them, would you want your kid to be raised in? And can you guess which one they chose? Overwhelmingly house number two, family number two, where it's very modest, they struggle, but they're very relationally close. But there was a second part of the question. And the second part of the question was, what are your values? What are you pursuing in your life? What are you after in your home? And this was the remarkable thing. The very families that said they would choose family number two, the couples and people, they were actually living lives to try and be like family number one. And they didn't even realize the very thing they value isn't what they were living for, wasn't what they were pressing for, that, that they don't even want that for their kids if they look at the, their lives. And you look at that and you think, how could our values and our lives be, be so separated by this immense chasm? Now, the amazing thing is when I read Jesus' prayer, the very things that he prays for for us are the things he's living the things that characterize who he is and are all about him is as if Jesus is like, he's praying, he's like, look, Father, I want them to have all of this. Let them have it all. Let them have the, 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 that you, all that you've given to me. And that's what I want to look at with you today. First, this relationship between the, the Father and the Son, because it explains so much. And the second, what Jesus wants for you if you're one of his followers. If you're not a follower of Jesus, sort of think about what, is, what would Jesus want for those that follow him. And then finally, how it can be possible. Now, last week, Dave began this teaching of one of the most intimate passages there is in all the Bible, because as I mentioned, this is the communication between God the Father and the Son, and it's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. And the reason it is, if you're taking notes, is there's a really simple three-part outline to this prayer every year the high priest would be able to go before the presence of God on only one day of the year. And he would have to go with blood to make atonement for the sins of the people. It's called Yom Kippur. You've probably heard about it. And when he would do that, before he went in, he would say a prayer that had three parts to it. First, he would pray for himself. Then he would pray for all of the other spiritual leadership. And then he would pray for all the people. Then he would go in. And that's exactly the outline to Jesus's prayer. So Dave last week showed us how Jesus prays for himself. And today we look at how Jesus prays for his disciples and for us by extension. Now here's the surprising thing about this prayer, and it fills the whole chapter. Never once does Jesus call them his disciples. Never once does he call them his apostles. 
But four times he refers to them like this. Those whom you gave me out of the world, those you have given me for they are yours. You see, he doesn't speak of them as followers or disciples or apostles. He, he talks of them as this love gift that the Father has given to him. And here is why. It is through the disciples, through you and me, that the, this connection of love between the Father can be seen. Think about it. If the Father owns, has all things, he gives this people to Jesus. Well, what does he do for this people that God has given to him? How does this show this love between the Father and the Son, this interconnection between the members of the Trinity? What a beautiful picture you see, in us, the love of the Father and the Son actually meet because, as I said, everything belongs to the Father. So these disciples to Jesus, he cherishes them because they're a gift. And here, the purposes of the Father and Son have a connection here. And by the way, this is the way it is even now. The Father and Son are sharing this love between them because the Son is next to the Father and he's interceding for you with the Father saying, hey, listen to the need, this need, because this one belongs to me. You gave them to me, and I'm bringing them back to you. And this is why you are so important to Jesus. It's why Jesus would go to the cross for you. It's who you are. Now, years ago, Sandy and I, um, when we started to work together before we were engaged and before we, we got married, it was about the time that that movie E.T. came out. You ever see the movie E.T.? Really sort of a fun movie in which this... Uh, extraterrestrial lands on earth and he's discovered by some little kids and one of them named Elliot gets really close to E.T. and by the way he gives him the name E.T. and guess how Elliot first draws out this alien to be his friend he leaves a little trail of Reese's Pieces maybe you've had that candy and even aliens we have learned like this stuff it's tasty it has peanut butter right and chocolate. And so E.T. would follow them out and he would eat them. And before long, he's got this friend with Elliot, right? So that movie was out and Sandy and I had both seen it, although we hadn't gone to the movie together. We talked about it. And so one day I go into my office and there's this little trail of Reese's Pieces leading out of my office. Now, I couldn't tell whether that's because she thought I was an alien or she wanted me to get closer to her, okay? And so by being the guy that I am, I was totally clueless that she was interested in me. That's sort of the definition of a guy, cluelessness, right? But over time, I figure it out. And, and all these years later, by the way, guess what I think of when I see Reese's Pieces? I think of how great peanut butter is. No, I think of her. I think of her. And so imagine between the father and the son, there's this beautiful thing in which you're in the middle of their love between each other. You, because you're in the middle of this, of course Jesus is going to be for you. Of course the Father's going to protect you. Of course God is for you. You may not believe that you're in the middle of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the triune God, the beauty of all of this. And by the way, the disciples are clueless about this. They're blind to the love Jesus has for them and how they will fit into the picture. But now they're hearing it. And they're hearing it in this intimate conversation. They're enjoying, they have this communion with God. Wow. Do you know that you're not an accessory to the plan of God? 
you're right in the middle of who God is between the Father and the Son. By the way, occasionally, still today, the good news is Sandy sometimes still gives me Reese's Pieces. She didn't stop after 10 or 20 years. Here's Jesus. He says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. In other words, we share in common this people. That's who they are. That's bigger than disciple and apostle. That's this love communication between the Father and the Son. And it's how the glory comes. You see, in loving you, this glory can be seen between them and also in the world. And this leads to what Jesus prays for. Okay, so if there's this love going on here, what would Jesus pray about? What is so important? He's going to ask the Father to give it to you. Now we think about what the disciples need and what we need, and, and likely I think we would get it wrong because Jesus is going to send the disciples into the world. They're common men. They don't have any financial backing to speak of. They have no status. What is Jesus going to pray for? Is he going to pray for that kind of stuff? It's easy, I think, to get this wrong as you pray for other people. I know I have. It says, years ago, I, I read a book on leadership that recounted a story of what came to be called the Franklin Expedition. It happened in the 1840s. In the day when, like, going to the North Pole or the South Pole, nobody had ever visited there. It'd be like trying to plan a trip to Mars and figuring out, well, what do I need? How's this going to work? And this guy, John Franklin, set out with three ships 138 officers to find the Northwest Passage. That's the, the, the way to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific, right? That would allow the trade routes to work better. They believed that there was a way to do this. And this expedition was a complete failure. Let me tell you why. Because Franklin didn't equip his men or ships for what they would face. So for example, why every ship, it was a sailing boat as you'll see, while it was, they, he put a steam engine on board so that it could have propulsion. But you know, on each ship, he only provided 12 days of coal. It was going to be a two-year journey. And on board the ship, there was a 1,200-volume library on each of the ships. you got to be kidding me. We're going to be burning books before you know it, right? Because he didn't plan. And by the way, though they were going to face some of the harshest conditions on earth, they were given the, the regular uniform of the Royal Navy. No special jackets to face that cold. So when the, the ships reached the Canadian Maritime, they became trapped in sea ice. Their supplies run out. Some stayed with the ships. Others tried to walk to safety. Every single one of them perished. Every one. And you know why? They didn't have what they needed. And that's always the question, right? What do you think you need to walk as a disciple of Jesus in a city like this in 2023? Maybe you tell yourself, hey, if I just had a little bit more money, or maybe if I were closer to the levers of power, or maybe if I could exert more control, right? Isn't that how they will succeed? We hear none of that. By the way, if you're writing notes, Jesus prays for six things. This is what they are. He prays for unity, as uh, Jeff was just talking about. We'll look at that in great detail next week, we, that they may be one as we are one. He prays for their protection. They're going out into the world, right? 
Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. He prays for truth. He knows that it will be because of the truth that they live with, that they live in, right, that they'll be able to walk. He prays for their joy. You may, they may have the full measure of my joy within them. He prays for mission. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. And he prays for their holiness or being set apart or sanctified. Now, it sounds like a shopping list, but it's not. This is what you need as a disciple of Jesus. You need community. Disciples cannot survive alone, and you can't either. This is why Granada pushes community groups, not because there's another program. This is what Jesus prays we would enjoy, because there are times you're going to need somebody to pick you up. There are times when you're going to need to walk along with someone else. Something is going to happen in your life or that person next to you that they're going to need support. You will model love to each other. You will challenge each other. So Jesus prays for a unified people. He also prays for the Father's protection and care, just as Jesus had watched over them. And as I mentioned, they need truth because they're going to be in a world filled with lies and they can get off track. And he wants them to share his joy because it has been the joy that before Jesus that has even sustained him. And you need it too when difficult times come. And they will come. The joy from knowing you're secure in God, the joy from knowing you're one of his children, knowing that God will keep you to the end. And he says, yes, you need a great spiritual purpose in your life. You need a mission. Now, some time ago, I came across the story of a guy named Anthony Ray Hinton. Okay, he's one of the writers of this book entitled The Sun Does Rise, an amazing book. Let me tell you a little bit of his story. Uh, one day, he was a young man. He was at his parents' house. He was cutting the grass when all of a sudden these police cars just rise right in the in front of his mom's yard. He had no idea what was going on. And before he knows it, they've put him under arrest. They're leading him off to a police car. He doesn't even know what he's done. He, he doesn't know of doing anything. But the reality was he was being arrested for two murders that had been committed. And the only kind of information they had was, this guy is a black man. And by the way, the truth was, one of those times, he was actually at work in the kind of place where you have to check in with your name and check out when you're done. But it didn't matter. And on the way to the police station, one of those guys told him this. I don't care whether you're guilty or not. You're a black man. And a black man did it. We've got one, we've got you. We don't need anything else. And with a public defender, he was convicted, even though he'd passed a polygraph test and there were records saying he was at work. Convicted for murdering those two men, he was sentenced to death, and in Alabama, he was put on death row. He spent 28 years on death row before his innocence was proven with the very evidence they had at the trial. Imagine that. And that is the longest time that a man has ever been held in this country for a crime he didn't commit. But here he is now. And I was like, uh, uh, how did he get there? There's no acrimony. There's no anger. There's no bitterness. There's no hatred. How do you arrive 28 years later on the other side of something that has literally taken the heart out of your life. How are you going to do that? Well, let me tell you how it happened. When he, Anthony first arrived at prison, he was so angry, he cursed God and he threw his Bible under his bed. And then he didn't talk to anyone for about two years. 
It's a whole chapter in his book on two years of silence. But then one night, he hears this horrible sobbing, like the kind of bitter sobbing of, of a loss that's hard to even put into words. And he wonders who it can be, and he yells out, down death row was another man named Henry Hayes. Now that might not make any, it might not mean anything to you, but he was the last guy in Alabama to ever lynch a black man. He'd been in the KKK. But that night, down the cell block from Anthony, this guy is crying his eyes out, just bitterly crying. And so guess what Anthony does? He calls out to him. He wants to know what's going on, and he finds that this man, Hayes, his mother had just died. And the fact that he's there, he couldn't be with her. And he is totally undone. And that night, Anthony goes and gets his Bible. And he loves this man that he knows he should probably hate. And what begins is 26 years of ministry in that prison to other men who are on death row and who have no hope, who now have the opportunity to learn that they are still loved by God. And they're not forgotten by God. Do you want to know how he got to the end of 26 years, those 28 years in prison, and he's not angry and furious and wants revenge? It's because he learned while he was there, he was on mission. God had a purpose in this. God was at work in and through him, through, through all of those years. And you begin to realize, you know, look, if you don't have a mission, how is this experience in this city going to be? How, how is your life going to go? But when you have a mission and you're connected to the Father and you know he has a purpose in your life, you're able to push through this. You're able to go forward. You need a mission from God. By the way, this is why Serve Week is huge. You can go and connect with an organization that may be a going, an ongoing connection. You may discover something that God is pushing you and directing you to in a way to serve. It doesn't mean that you become a pastor or a missionary. It means that you discover how to use the gifts and passions and temperament and abilities God has given you to glorify him. Whether it's, it's raising your own children or building houses or making music, you have a critical role in the purposes of God. And this is what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for this. This reminds you you are here for a reason and that you are joining God in his work. That's, that's what he's praying for. And the, finally, the last thing is he prays for your holiness. That's more than purity. It means being set apart for God in who you are and the way you live. It, it means being light in the darkness, right? Hope, hope and despair. Now, I read this prayer. Let me, I'm so convicted. It's like, man, I want to go back and change my prayers. What am I praying for my own kids? What am I praying for people I love that will enable them to walk faithfully, to fulfill the mission God has for them? Now, let me tell you, there are a bunch of surprises. Here's one of the big ones. He prays about nothing the disciples have to do. He's not praying, Lord, make them do this stuff. He's praying about that which God will, will give to them. They are all gifts. That's how it will happen. And you say, well, how can Jesus' prayer be answered? Of course, Jesus is asking the Father to do this. And here's what you recognize in the prayer if you look at it. Notice how he addresses the Father. He says, Holy Father. Do you know that's the only time in Scripture that we hear that's how Jesus addresses his Father? Why like this? 
I mean, the two don't even seem to fit together, right? I mean, to be holy is to be God, and nobody can stand before him. He is beyond pure. He is righteous and holy in all things and not to tolerating sin. This, this is the very character of God. But I hear Father, and I hear compassion. I think of the father of the prodigal who runs out to meet him. He, he's filled with compassion and grace. He's forgiving sin. And you're like, how do these fit together? But Jesus is saying this because in him they do. The holiness of God and the grace of God meets. Listen to how Jesus prays this. He says, for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. You say, well, how does Jesus need to be sanctified? He's already sanctified. He's talking about being set apart, and he does it at the cross. All that Jesus does there for us answers and provides the way for every one of these prayers to be answered. Let me tell you how. Because Jesus died and what he's done, all of us have a mission in the world. We couldn't have a greater mission than this. Because Jesus died, you have a community Jesus formed based on his blood and his cross, his love and his forgiveness. Because Jesus died, you have the protection of the Father. Because he died for you, you can never be lost to God. And we have joy because Jesus rose from the dead, and he promised that we shall live also. We have been given all of these things, and you are holy because Jesus gave himself for you. He gave his status to you as holy before God. It is all there. And when Jesus from the cross says, it is finished, he did it all. It is done. And I read this prayer. So by the way, this is not your to-do list. It is not. It is all of grace. But let me tell you the second part for me. I read this prayer and I say, really? Has the Father answered this prayer? I see I've seen believers as divided as ever. Where is the unity? I see relationships blow up almost every day. I, I, I see little holiness. I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me. I see few people living on mission. And they, most of us don't even know what our mission is, for goodness sakes. And there seem to be so few living in the truth. Has the Father failed? That's what I asked. No, it's all a gift. And it's all given fully through the cross of Jesus. Do you know you already have it all. So what's the problem? Listen carefully. This is not something we must do. It is a reality, or rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we can participate. We can live in it. Years ago, a wonderful inheritance was given by my great aunt. She had five siblings to those siblings of hers, she loved this place in the mountains of North Carolina. You'll see the top of this mountain. I don't know if you can see it with the light. Can you dim light so we can see it? Um, and she left this house to all of her siblings. She had two brothers and three sisters so that they could be up there. She lived there with her husband and could spend time with her. They could enjoy time together. And let me tell you, it is a beautiful place. It's been left to the generations Right, So I actually have, I think I figured this out, I have a, a third of a, of a fourth of that house. It takes higher math to figure that out. But I get to go up there. I get to enjoy this place, right? This glorious place. She deeded it to them. And it has been the joy of our family. But let me tell you something interesting. One of her brothers 
never visited this place. As beautiful as it is, he never enjoyed the mountain views or the cool afternoons on the porch, which are wonderful. And it was his by gift. He could have enjoyed it any time. But it was a gift that he never really received. He never enjoyed. You see, what Jesus is praying about is not something we achieve, but a gift that we can participate in and enjoy, like spiritual community or the mission in him. One fully provided, and by the way, he's still praying for you. He's still praying for you right now. And so my question is, how can we enjoy this gift that's been given by God? How can we, overhearing the prayer of Jesus with the Father, say, wow, I didn't know I was, I was loved that much. I, I didn't know that there was that love for me. How I'm included in the plans and purpose. Wow, I didn't know all of this is provided to me. I, I want to enjoy this. And, and then how can we enjoy the gifts that he prayed might be yours because they already are? Father, thank you for inviting us into this intimate place so that we know that this relationship between Father and Son is real and living and that we're also in the middle of it. It's hard for us to imagine that, even though we may know it's true. And Father, thank you for the gifts that come through Jesus, the beautiful freedom of the gospel that's found in the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, the the community, as we look around here and see so many different people and know that we're here because you've loved us and you've loved us so well. I pray, Father, as we come to this meal, that just as the disciples in hearing that prayer could see the moment they were in, we'd see the moment too. This is as the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood. And there's life for us. And there's freedom. There are all the things that we need as disciples in this city. So we thank you, we worship you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This prayer that Jesus uh, prayed over his disciples at this